There is an old story that is shared by many a preacher that I'm going to share with you today, okay? So there was a traveling preacher that came to town to do a revival, and this is happening outside of Chicago, and, and one night that preacher decided that he was going to put the audience to the test. And so he said, uh, I'm going to give you a word, just one word, and I want you to shout out the name of the hymn most associated with that word. And so he started off and he said, blood, and then from the, there's power in the blood, boom, yes, and everybody's like, amen. And then he, then he said, grace, and after, you know, amazing grace, everybody kind of settled on amazing grace, and then he thought he would get a little crafty on him, and he said, Jesus, and some people says, my Jesus, I love thee, and then finally, no, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, yeah, yeah, amen, everybody was there, and then, then he really threw it out at him, and he said, sex, gasped from the front row, and then it fell completely silent. And this elderly lady from the balcony stepped up to the railing, smiled, and said, precious memories. (laughs) There are a lot of myths when it comes to sex. If you watch TV there's a good chance that you may be under the belief that the only people who have really hot, passionate sex are single people. Because most of the sitcoms, most of the shows on TV don't show married people really having much good marriage stuff going on. Most of the marriages that are on TV land are kind of really dysfunctional. Not that most marriages are a little dysfunctional, but, but the only people who seem to be really, you know, satisfied with their sex life seem to be single people on television. The funny thing is... Sex study after sex study shows that the people who are having the most frequent sex and who are the most satisfied with their sex lives are, in fact, married people. Go figure. But it's a myth. It's out there. Another myth among singles, especially single Christian men, is that once they get married, everything will take care of itself. And sex will be great, and it will be frequent, and it'll just be awesome, unlimited, in the average young Christian man's mind. And then for the average Christian young lady, it's a little different. And and she's thinking, you know, when I get married someday, finally I'm not going to have to say goodnight at the end of the night. We can just cuddle. And he can be there and support me and love me. It's funny how they have different expectations, isn't it? Um, And then married people. Married people, get they get married and they get into the nitty-gritty of life and you pop out some kids. And married people labor under a myth that is this all it's going to be? I mean, you know, I think, what is, what month is this, you know? And they're thinking back to the last time, and it's been a while, and, and they, they just labor under a myth that, well, that's all it can be. It, it's not going to get any better than this. In fact, it's going to continue to, quote, go downhill. And so those are some myths that are out there that pervade our culture and pervade people's mindset. Today, I'm going to give you a lot of opinion, max opinion, and max advice wrapped around the biblical principle. The biblical principle is true. How you apply it, that's up to you, but, you know, take my advice today with a grain of salt. So this message is the one message in the series that you get a lot of, you know, here's some tips from Uncle Max, so to speak, or Cousin Max. Uh, But there are two problems that I see when it comes to marriages and sex within marriage. And so uh, the first problem is that you married a person who turned out to be selfish, Come on, let's just be honest. You know, when you were dating, they were like affirming you all the time. Guys, they were telling you that you hung the moon, that you were the best man on the planet. 
Uh, Ladies, he was so attentive, he would surprise you with gifts, whisk you away for dates. He was so thoughtful. I mean, just think of some of the things that he did. And then you got married and some months into it and some years into it, and you figure out they changed. They stopped doing those things. And they started complaining about what their needs were and how their needs weren't getting met. And barky, 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 right? They just turned out to be Come on, let's be honest, selfish. And that's a problem in married life. Here's the second problem. The person who married you married someone who was selfish. (laughs) And if they were to sit down with their friends and moan about all the stuff that you don't do anymore and how, you know, you were just so attentive and so thoughtful and all these other things when when, when they were dating you, you know, their friends would go, yeah, man, you must have married... The wrong person, right? We've talked about that here at church, okay? Now, if you're a teenager, you're one of our students here today, pay attention because I'm going to talk about some stuff that make your mom and dad crotchety. Maybe you've had, seen them have fights and you've been like, man, now I want to remind you, your mom and dad actually probably do love each other. And the, what happens when you get conflict in a relationship, again, this is Uncle Max's advice, Uncle Max's perspective and opinion, when you get that kind of friction, it's usually because one or both of them aren't getting their needs met. And when your needs aren't getting met, it makes you a little barky. Barf! You know, you're not affirming me. Barf! You know, you're not just cuddling me. Barf! You know, and it kind of comes out that way eventually. Sometimes it comes out, the steam stack blows, and then it's, you know, World War III, and you have to just shield yourself in the bunker. But, you know, so teenagers, hang with me. I'm talking about some stuff that that happens in married land. So how, do you, how does it get this way? How is it that marriages that start off so great and googly-eyed and infatuationville end up in, you know, he's grumpy at her and she's grumpy at him and it's just grumpiness all the time? Well, let me spell out some typical scenarios that I see. One, one is graduate school. So, you know, she and he get married, and one of them is off in medical school or seminary, and it's a together decision. Oh, yes, you know, God wants this, God's for this, God's in this, and, you know, I'm going to support you in this degree, and it's great, and they're all together on it, and six months into it, there's been papers and homework and practicum hours, and there's all the demands of the professors, and then there's the institutional requirements, and before you know it, the person who's the student isn't able to do the things that they were doing before. And they agreed that there, it would be for a season and that it was okay, but the person who's not the student is starting to feel neglected. And about a year into it, the, those feelings of neglect are only amplified. And then it kind of usually comes to a head in an argument or two. Uh, another typical scenario is just life. Person A, person B, man and a, a woman, they get married, they become husband and wife. You, you get a job, you get responsibilities, you have overtime, you get fired from your job, you know, you lose your job, and then you're, oh, I need a job. And then, you know, there's all of the stress, and you throw in some kids in the mix. And, you know, back in the 1700s, no offense, kids present here today, but back in the 1700s, by the time a kid was six or seven years old, they were going down to the river to fetch water. And, you know, it seems like today that kids, you know, are more work than they are, you know, contribution to the household. And so, you know, for a lot of parents, they're harried, and they're stressed out, and they're tired and they're just exhausted all the time and then in that exhaustion it bleeds over into the sexual component of their married life a man a typical married man would say something to the effect of you know my wife used to tell me all the time that i was the greatest thing that ever happened to her 
I just haven't heard that recently. And sex might not have been every day, but at least it was like maybe twice or three times a week. And now, you know, I'm going by the months and, you know, uh, and time alone together. I don't even know what that is with my wife anymore. And then a, a stereotypical married woman might say something to the effect of, you know, my husband used to do all these things for me and there were these gifts and surprises and he was just so thoughtful about the things that he would say to me. And he would just sit. I remember he could just sit and gaze into my eyes, not even wanting sex. I mean, just gazing into my eyes. Now, when I get the gaze, I know. And I tell him, not tonight. (laughs) Okay? What I'm talking about is the climate of a marriage. And what I want to remind you married people about today is that climate and sex are linked You have a good climate, you've got great sex, typically. You've got great sex, you usually have a good climate. They're kind of connected. And I want to remind you of that today. And so I want to spell out a biblical principle, and you can figure out how that applies to you and how to run with it in your married life, okay? And the first passage that I'm going to look at to spell out this biblical principle is 1 Corinthians 7. We were actually here before, and we're going to come back to it. 1 Corinthians 7. This is a letter that Paul wrote to a very dysfunctional church in Corinth, uh, a church that was racked with all kinds of sexual immorality, weird, funky relationships, um, bitterness, divisiveness. um, And it's in that context that he writes this letter. And he's basically explaining, hey, You got the Holy Spirit in you. You guys are new people, new creation. You know, I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life, but, you know, you really ought to, dot, dot, dot. Okay, and so that falls into that category. And here it is in chapter 7, what I think is one of the weirdest chapters in the Bible. I told you this before. It's one of the weirdest chapters in the Bible. Let's just put that on the table. But here's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. Isn't that interesting? And the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. What on earth is going on there? I mean, are you telling me, like, my wife owns my body? No, not in the sense of a commodity or the sense that you're your wife's slave or she's your slave or something like that. No, 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 no. Context is everything. And in this letter, in 1 Corinthians, if you just fast forward a few chapters, you get to 1 Corinthians 13, which almost every couple in America uses on their wedding day. 1 Corinthians 13, the wedding chapter, right? Love is what? Patient. Love is patient. Love does not pressure people. Love does not... uh, force people to do something. Love does not constantly berate somebody with, with, you know, you never, you never, how come you don't? Pressure, pressure, pressure. Love is patient. Love is kind. You know, and it, it spells out what love is. And so Paul's very careful to articulate what love is. And so if you have that understanding of love, and then you're reading this section about husbands and wives and their bodies, what Paul is saying is, you know, No, it's not all about you. If you're married, guys, it's about her. If you're married, ladies, it's actually about him. Your body isn't just yours to do with whatever you want for your own pleasure. It's actually so that you can give of yourself to your husband, give of yourself to your wife. 
in what pleases them. And so I want to draw out this giving-taking component that can happen in marriages that sets the climate. All right, but let's, let's finish up this little section here. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. And again, of all the couples I've ever had that sat down with me, no one has ever said that they stopped having sex because they were praying. No one's ever done it, all right? So afterward, you should come together again so Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command, all right? So there's a sense at which we belong to each other, and there's a sense at which we're, God's expecting us and God's wanting us to give of ourself to the other for what the other needs for, to please the other person, all right? Nowhere is this seen more clearly, this attitude, than Philippians. And so that's where we're going to go next, Philippians chapter 2. Another letter of Paul, and this is what he says here in Philippians chapter 2. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. And then the kicker, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look only to your own interests, but take an interest in others too. So if you're married, right, you would read this through a married lens. Don't be selfish, Max. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Think of Jenny as better than you. Don't look out for just what you want, but take an interest in her and what she wants. Boom. All of a sudden, as a married man now, this makes sense to me. And I don't need a class or a seminar on what makes Jenny happy or what she likes and doesn't like. I've been married to her for 20-some years. I know. Okay? So, uh, and then he goes on, and he says, you must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born a human being. True love, love, or as they used to say in the Princess Bride, right? True love, true love is giving love, not taking love. True love is a love that is other-focused, and that's what Paul wants us to see in the Bible. It's what they need. It's what they like. It's what they want. Ironically, most couples do this naturally in the dating infatuation stage. As a pastor, when I sit down with couples, their feeling and love quotient is off the chart. I mean, they're pre-wedding day. They're holding hands when they sit down in my office. When I ask them why they want to get married and, and what the reasons are, here's, I'm just going to channel young couples that I sit with all the time. I just, I can't explain to you how I feel when I'm around him. He just, he's just, he's so tender with me and he's so considerate and, and uh, oh my goodness. And when I met her, it was like, you know, I, I just can't even put into words. She's just amazing. I, she makes me feel like a million bucks. She makes me feel like the smartest man in the room. Boom, 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 boom. And the things that they say when they say, well, why do you want to get married? Very rarely does someone say, so I can serve the other person. 
almost always what they say is what the other person is doing for them and how the other person is making them feel. Remember that whole thing about selfishness? Here's where it comes into play, right? So you're, you're, you're in that dating, googly, I love you, I love you more, baby, it's for us from forever and always, and you know, nothing will stop us, nothing will come in between us. And then you go forward a few years or even a few months, and the feelings go away because one or more of them stop considering the other person and they start thinking about what they're getting or not getting. And again, married people, this affects the climate of the marriage, okay? This is why the feeling of love quotient is so strong when they're starting out and tends to wane over time because he was meeting my needs. She was meeting my needs. So in, in married life, the busyness and the demands of life, what happens is it squelches that down. You get into survival mode. And so you're only thinking about yourself. You come home, you're tired, da-da-da. You're not thinking of your wife. You've been battling kids. You've been doing your own work. And then you know there's seven loads of laundry. Trust me, I'm the laundry person in my household. It multiplies. Evil laundry, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus, okay? <laughs> and so the last thing on your mind is what he needs or what he wants, okay? And, and this plays out, typically. No more, nowhere is this more clearly seen in a client that uh, Willard... Harley saw once. I'm going to tell you, Willard Harley is a, a marriage therapist, and he encountered a young, uh, not a young woman. Well, uh, yeah, she's young. I'm 44, 50s young. So she was 50 years old, right? Some of you are like, dang, that's old. Okay, shh, shh, it's perspective. So he's a marriage therapist. Willard is a marriage therapist. This woman, 50-year-old woman, comes into him, sits down, you know, the whole thing. How can I help you today? I want to divorce my husband. Okay, uh, well, tell me what's going on. Oh, the guy's a jerk. He works all the time. It's all about his business. I mean, he's a seven, don't get me wrong. The guy's a seven-figure income guy, but I'm done. I'm tired of him coming home, bringing work crap home, barking at me all the time. I'm tired of the fact that he's completely inattentive. If I want something, if I need something, if something needs done around the house, never. He won't even lift a finger. He's blind to it. I hate him. So it sounds like you've made up your decision. How can I help you? I want to hurt him. I'm sorry? Yeah, when I serve him divorce papers, I want him to cry for months. So tell me, what can I do so that I can hurt him badly when I serve him papers? This really happened. So he says, the counselor is like, you really want to hurt your husband that badly? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop nagging him completely. What? Yeah, no, no, no. Stop nagging him completely, and if the only thing you can compliment him on is the fact that he's bringing home such a large paycheck, start there. And at least every day, thank him for providing so well for the family. And then make a point to make love to him. You're kidding me. No, I'm telling you. Just start with those two things. And then he mapped out some other things. And she's like, so you're telling me that if I do this, and he says, I want you to do this for three months. At the end of three months, you have your lawyer serve him papers at his office. Trust me, he will be devastated. He will never have seen it coming. And she, off she goes. 
the arrangement was that after three months, she, when the day she served him divorce papers, she was supposed to call him and check in and let him know what happened. Well, three months comes and three months goes. Three months turns into four months. Four months turns into five months. Five months turns into six months. And finally, he can't take it anymore. And so he calls the woman and he says, you were supposed to come you know, back and check in with me. I, I, I'm dying to know, how did he take it when you served the papers? You know what she said? Are you nuts? And the guy said, well, let me, let me remind you, the guy was a jerk. He's not inconsiderate. She says, I'm telling you, he's done a complete 180. He's a different, there's no way I would divorce him now. Are you kidding me? He's amazing. True story. So how did a jerk turn into Mr. Wonderful? Someone was giving in the relationship, and so someone started giving back. Now, I want to make this important caveat. If five years go by, and you're giving and giving, and the other person is just taking and taking, there's a word for that in marriage land. It's called abuse. If there's just one giver and one taker, that's abuse. When there's two takers, and you're taking, and they're taking, and you're both all the time, that's a brutal marriage. (laughs) Some of you are like, amen. (laughs) Okay? That's a brutal marriage. That's a hard marriage. But when two people are giving That's a great marriage, and that also provides a climate for great sex within the marriage, all right? So, here's some more, here's a little bit of practical advice, all right? So, ladies, I'm going to, on behalf of you, I'm going to talk to men in the room at the moment, and I'm going to try and articulate some things that you might want. If I'm off, just like right out of the princess bride, boo, just boo, right from your seat, but if... If I'm hitting something that's close to the truth, you know, an amen or glory or hallelujah, you know, however you want to do it, all right? So, so guys, in the interest, of, you know, if you're married, you're married to this woman, some ways to serve her, some ways to, to go about what she wants, what she needs, you know, she would like you to be interested in her as a person, not an object. Sometimes she just wants to cuddle, she has a need for NST. It's called non-sexual touch. So sometimes just go up to her and give her a hug with no expectation of anything else. I'm not talking about, you know, those kind of hugs. I'm talking about a hug, okay? <laughs> Stroke her hair, again, with no, no, the hand not going anywhere else, okay? Non-sexual touch. Sometimes she just wants to talk, look her in the eye and care about everything that's going on in her world. And lastly, remember that the most androgynous spot in your wife is likely her mind. Touch her heart, touch her mind before you touch her body. Now, men, I want to speak on behalf of you. Now, I don't know much about what it means to be a woman. Um, I hang around women occasionally, and that's just stuff they've told me. So maybe it was off, I don't know. You'll have to figure this out on your own. But, but on behalf of men, ladies, if I could speak, I would say this. Um, they would love more frequency when it comes to the sexual component of married life. Um, 
guys, I don't want to rat you out, but occasionally, not, not, not all the time, but from time to time, a man will say something to the effect of, it's been three weeks, it's been since my last, it's almost like a Narconon meeting, you know, it's, it's not good, okay, so, and, and I want to tell you women that it doesn't necessarily mean you're married to a sicko, it doesn't, it just means that there's a difference going on, and so for men, it's MST, more sexual touch, not necessarily NST. There's just one digit off, but sometimes, all right? And guys, they have an emotional component when it, when it comes to the sexual component of marriage, and they want to know that you accept them and that you admire them. And they want to know those things, all right? So let me ask some questions to all of you married people, and then um, for those of you that are single, this is good preparation for marriage, these questions. Do you... Do you consider, so married people, do you consider your spouse's needs above your own? Do you consider your spouse's needs above your own? And for all of you who are single, when you encounter people out there, are you trying to come out on top? Are you trying to get just what you want and what you need? Or are you actually considerate of others and what they want and what they need? And, and married people, would your checkbook, visa statement, calendar, birthdays and anniversaries and vacations agree that your spouse's needs are more important than yours? Second question, uh, do you do thankless or meaning, meaningful things, for, me, menial things for your spouse? So you do, do you do thankless, menial things for your spouse when no one's looking? And then single people. If you're in a family, do you ever just help out to help out and show love for your family that way? Or you're in a dorm or suite with other people who are just absolutely filthy and can't pick up after themselves. You know what I'm talking about. Your roommates, your suite mates. Do you ever do stuff when it's not your turn just to serve them and just to show love in that way? Do you build up others more than you tear down? Do you build up your spouse more than you tear your spouse down? All right, so how, how could you improve your married sex life? Again, in the category of unsolicited advice from your cousin Max. Married people, just understand there is a profound connection between the climate and the sex component of marriage, and they're connected and they're related. And you want to be working on a great climate because that also happens to change what happens in the bedroom. So the second piece of advice is this, married people, communicate, talk with each other. And so when you're talking, don't say things like, you never, you don't care about, right? Say it this way, I wish I could experience, I really like it when. If you find it difficult to talk as a married couple, I would encourage you to pick up a book called Intended for Pleasure and read it aloud to each other, a chapter uh, every couple, two or three days and begin exploring the topic of sex and sexuality as a married couple if you've never really had the ability to talk about it. Um, next, I would encourage you to devise a mutual plan. Um, I'll re- remind you of the old lady's advice from a few sermons ago, peanut butter and jelly night. If you don't know what that means, come talk to me, right? Um, if left to random opportunities the sexual component of your married life could be something that is a rarity. And remember, we said that one of the purposes of sex in the context of a marriage is actually spousal unity. And so if you take away sex, what happens to spousal unity? It goes away. It drains. 
and there's a connection, and I want to remind you of that. Um, and guys, not just physical dates, but emotional dates on the calendar, where there's times where you're connecting with your wife just to connect with her emotionally, and just, just to share life, and just to share heart to heart, all right? Uh, next piece of advice I would give is watch out for habits that will unintentionally kill off sexual intimacy in your marriage. Dogs and kids in a bed are a great way to kill that off. Um, I'm just, you know, uh, nowadays in building circles in the upper echelons of very expensive homes, there's now two master bedrooms that are built, two master baths. The expectation is the wife gets one, the husband gets the other. Again, that will affect spousal unity, all right? Another thing is consider dynamic marriage. Dynamic marriage is a nine-week, what is it, a nine-week class that you can take and experience with other couples in a safe context where you talk about your marriage and you talk about the things that bring up the level of marriage satisfaction. And uh, I would strongly encourage you to get in a class like that. Jenny and I have done it, and we plan to do it again the next time it's offered in Generations Land. Um, and so, because wouldn't you be more satisfied if your love feelings in your marriage were higher than they are now? Of course you would. And the last piece of advice is simply this. Married people, you have the ability to dial climate change in your marriage. It's not too late. You're not too old. There's not that many, too many issues that are, you know, you have the ability to bring about climate change. You do. God can help you. The Holy Spirit can help you. And a great way to start is to take on that mindset that Jesus, our Lord, took on in relating to us, the mindset of a servant. What would, it, what would it be in the context of your home if you served your wife just twice as much as you do now? What would it change in your marriage context if you served your husband just twice as much as you do now? I bet the reciprocity that comes back at you would surprise you, all right? And what I want for you is, for those of you that still have kids at home, this is my goal for you as, as parents and as married people. I want you to be looking forward to the day when you're free, when they're graduated. No, no offense, guys, no offense, students, but someday the goal is that you're going to grow up and lead wonderful, productive lives and go off to college and maybe marry yourself and maybe become president of the United States of America. And the mom and dad are going to wave goodbye. What I want for you is to be so excited about the possibility that it's just the two of you again because the climate of your marriage is such that you can't wait for it to once again just be 